So uh, one uh, thing that's on my bucket list is I would love to go to Jerusalem, go over there, see, be, walk where Jesus walked, be where he was. I think that would be spectacular. I'd love to take my whole family there. And uh, as a person that's teaching the Bible on a weekly basis, it would be neat to, to see the land that you're teaching about so often. Brandon's is swimming with sharks, which he will do. Brandon and Haley and Brian and Joan and Galen and Linda and Nancy, a whole crew of them are going to Hawaii. I'm a bit jealous, but I'm happy for them, and Brandon is going to swim with sharks. So, yeah, I wonder what's on your bucket list. Hey, I want to welcome you back to our sermon series, Living Hope. We've been uh, looking at how the resurrection of Jesus Christ can provide us hope for our past, hope for today, and this morning we're going to be looking at how the resurrection of Jesus Christ can provide us hope for the future. And the passage that we've been anchored in during this sermon series has been 1 Peter 1. It's the passage that Brandon read for us earlier. And I want to read a portion of that again, um, and then we'll, we'll check out this glorious future that awaits the child of God. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are alive. And because you are alive, because your body is not in a grave, that changes everything. It can totally redeem our past. It can totally change how we live today. You have given us access to the kingdom of the heavens that we can enjoy now, in the present now. And that we then can enjoy for an eternity. We praise you that you are willing to go to the cross to open that up for us. Thank you that as we celebrate Palm Sunday today, that when everybody was shouting, you know, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and waving palm branches as you entered Jerusalem. And then all those people turned on you. You didn't let that stop you. And you even died for the ones that turned on you. You are a great, merciful God, slow to anger, abounding in love. May we catch this morning an even better, more focused, more 2020 glimpse of your glory. And may you embed in our hearts this future hope that we have. And may that future hope change how we live today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so let me read these verses to you again. Again, I I encourage you, as your mind is going to want to wander, refocus it each time it wants to go to what's happening today or tomorrow or this week or what happened earlier. Let's hone in here. 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy 
has begotten us again or has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance, we're going to be talking about this inheritance, that is incorruptible, undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, you yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So in these verses, Peter wants his audience to know that this future that awaits them is secure. It's secure because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's this inheritance that is undefiled, it's incorruptible, it's unfading, that's being reserved securely in heaven for his audience. Peter tells us that it's being reserved, if if you were to go down to verse 13, he tells us that it's being reserved for the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what does this mean that is being reserved for the revelation of Jesus Christ? And what is this inheritance? Well, we all know what an inheritance is, right? It's, it's, it's possessions, it's money that someone decides to pass on to somebody else upon their death. Typically, people pass stuff on to their children. And if they don't have kids, they pass it on to another family member. That's the purpose of a will, right? It sorts out who gets what. I've even heard of, recently I've heard of a lot of people giving their inheritance to their pastor. So that's a new trend. (laughs) They take their wealth and they give it to their pastor. So it really helps out with the family feuding. You know, this, this sibling's arguing about this, and I know I'm, spo- I'm supposed to get that. And so they just say, you know, we'll just pass it on to the pastor, and there won't be fighting and that sort of thing. So just an idea. Now, what do all inheritance have in common? What do all earthly inheritance have in common? Eventually, they fade. That's what they have in common. They eventually wear out. Eventually, you part ways with it. My great-grandmother, Helen Curtis, gave me an inheritance of a 1989 Silver Dodge Aries. Guess what? That car eventually wore out. I no longer have that car. Even if uh, you know, a family member gives you money and you inherit that money, Eventually, that money, you're going to spend it, and you're no longer going to have it. Even if you're one of Sam Walton's kids, you know, the founder of Walmart, and you have a net worth of $40 billion, guess what? You don't get to 
take that money with you when you die. So eventually, you've got to part ways with it. Even billions of dollars in inheritance money isn't going to be with you forever. And so, everything you inherit from your parents will fade. Whether it's good looks, whether it's health, whether it's material possessions, whether it's a home, it's going to fade. But Peter says that this inheritance that God gives us does not fade. Our, our heavenly inheritance will never fade away. This means that it will never lose a degree of value. It's not going to decay. It's not going to wear out. It's going to be in the same condition it was on the 2,000th day of you owning it than it was on the first day that you received it. Sounds good, right? Peter also goes on to say that this inheritance that the children of God receive is undefiled. In other words, it is good through and through. It's good. I'm sure there are people in this room who have received an inheritance that wasn't all good and beneficial, right? You may have received some money, which was good, but you received a lot of junk, too, that you had to deal with. I love going to estate sales because you can find some real gems, right? Some real finds at bargain prices. And I like looking and walking through homes and seeing how they're designed. But a lot of times there is stuff there that obviously the kids didn't want because they're selling it. And really nobody else wants either. It always cracks me up when I... When we're going through the kitchen and you see an open closet door in the kitchen and there's like this half-used box of saran wrap that's for sale, right? By the way, Mary tried to buy a half-used box of saran wrap at an estate sale. And I can't help but think as, as one of the children of the person that has died, like are you that hard up for money? that you are selling a half-used box of saran wrap. I imagine the buyer, you know, once they secured the saran wrap, you know, having guests over and, you know, telling one of them, hey, let me put together a plate of food for you to take home. Now let me find that saran wrap that I bought from that dead person to cover it with. You know, I, I think it has their, it might still have their fingerprints on it, but I think they were a clean person. I mean, when I rummaged through their house, it looked pretty clean to me. It was decent. And of course, they're not going to know they're dead that we're using their saran wrap, right? But God, he won't give you junk when he gives you an inheritance, he won't give you a little bit of good mixed with a little bit of bad. It will be good through and through. It will be undefiled. It also will be incorruptible. In other words, the inheritance that God gives us is never going to go bad. It doesn't have a shelf life. I have heard of people that have received an inheritance, and on the surface, it looked great. 
looked like a real gift. And then after a while of owning it, it was like a noose around their neck. I've heard of people that, were, that have inherited land that nobody can build on, that they pay taxes on, that they can't get rid of because nobody else wants it. God's not going to give you something that's eventually going to go bad. The inheritance that God gives us is undefiled, it's uncorruptible, it's unfading. And the other thing is, it is kept safely in heaven for us. It's secure. I think of people that before the 2008-2009 stock market collapse, that probably had a fantastic inheritance saved for their children, only to see that take a major hit. I, you know, think about the people that went through the Great Depression. You go to the bank and they don't have your money, right? These things weren't, they're, they're only so secure. God's inheritance is something that we can bank on. It's even more certain than death and taxes. It is the guaranteed future for those who have been born again into his family. So... The question is, if the inheritance that God gives to his children is undefiled, it's unfading, it's secure in heaven, it's incorruptible, what is the inheritance? What is it exactly? Well, Peter, he talks about the the inheritance as salvation in verses 5, 9, and 10. Salvation is our heavenly inheritance. We will inherit as God's people salvation. A salvation that will lead to us being, and Peter, he tells us this in verse 7, praised, honored, and glorified. Your inheritance will lead to you. This salvation will lead to you being praised, honored, and glorified. But what will we be saved from? Why is it so awesome to inherit salvation? Peter doesn't specifically state in this passage what we will be saved from, but he mentions it in other places, and the Bible repeatedly tells us what we need to be saved from. We need to be saved from evil, we need to be saved from sin, and we need to be saved from death. We need to be saved from the evil spiritual forces in the spirit realm. We need to be saved from other people's sin and ugliness. We need to be saved from our own sin-sick hearts. We need to be saved from the death that evil and sin have caused to our relationship with God, to our relationship with each other, to our relationship with ourselves, to our relationship to the non-human creation. We need to be saved from the future, eternal punishment in hell, which is the consequence of our sin-stained lives. And this salvation is precisely what Peter is saying people that have been born again into God's family will inherit. Imagine a life 
free from the corrupting, defiling, fading, decaying effects of sin and death forever. That will result in your praise and your honor and your glory, which will ultimately serve to, to exalt God's glory because he's the one who made it happen. This has been made possible through Jesus Christ, who we do not see, but yet we love. This was the inheritance that Peter said caused him and his audience to live with an inexpressible joy despite their trials, despite their suffering. So how could Peter... In his audience, be so certain about this future that awaited them and those who have been born again into God's family. How did they know that this future would come to fruition? How can we know that this future indeed will happen for us today? You know how we know? It's because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let me, let me, let me tell you about that. With the resurrection, God's present future was already beginning to take shape. You see, what God did to Jesus in raising him from the dead and giving him new life, that is the beginning of what he is going to do to all things. You see, what happened with Jesus was the beginning of God's plan to exert his power in a special way through his spirit to take dead things and to make them alive. This miracle of resurrection was what God is planning and what he is planning to do, not only for his son, but to us who believe in him and to his non-human creation as well. Jesus was, this is to use the Apostle Paul's language and vocabulary, the first fruits of a greater harvest. Jesus was, his resurrection was the first fruits of God making all things new. Jesus' resurrection was a surefire sign that the Coldness in the deadness of winter was on its way out, and spring was on its way in. And it was a sign that eternal summer was on its way. And ever since Jesus' resurrection, God, his spirit, has been making dead things come alive. People lost in the death grip of addiction are coming alive. Shane Tyus. People lost in the death grip of shame are coming alive. People lost in the death grip of insecurity are coming alive. People lost in the death grip of worry, anxiety, and fear coming alive. People lost in the death, death grip of hopelessness are finding a living hope. People lost in the death grip of generational poverty coming alive. People lost in the death grip of abuse 
are coming alive. People lost in the death grip of the adult film industry are coming alive. People lost in the death grip of revenge are coming alive. People that are lost in the death grip of grief and sorrow are being resurrected to new life. Neighborhoods lost in the death grip of pimps, prostitutes, gang violence are coming alive. Families lost in the death grip of endless arguments are coming alive. Dead marriages, dead relationships coming alive. Independent, godless, spiritually dead people coming alive. I know that there is still so much darkness, so much pain in this world. And that the evil principalities in the spiritual realm still affect things in a negative way. But they've ultimately received a death blow. But resurrection is happening all around us. It's happening all around us. God's new world is taking shape. The first fruits of Jesus' resurrection are growing into a greater harvest right In our midst, the curse is starting to reverse, my friends. Do you see it? Do you see it? God, he's doing a new thing. Do you perceive it? God's spirit is bringing resurrection life all around us. And guess what? It's going to continue until King Jesus returns and completes it. And what he will do when he returns is he will banish all things and all people who have opposed him and that have marred his good world. He will banish them forever. He will quarantine them in hell forever, never to affect and mar his good world again. The curse of evil, sin, and death will be completely reversed, and it will be no more. All wrongs will be made right. Resurrection life for God's people in his world will be complete. What a glorious day it will be. Words can't really describe it. Victory. Free at last, free at last, Thank God Almighty, we and God's creation free at last, forever. And on that glorious day, as C.S. Lewis has said, we will realize that our life and adventures in this world and its current state were just the cover and title page. And that now at last we are beginning chapter one of the great story which no one, earth, well, no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. This is our hope. This is our final destination. This is what we in the non-human creation, Romans 8 tells us, is groaning for. This is what we are anticipating. This is what causes, causes us inexpressible joy in the midst of our present difficulties. The Bible's description of what this resurrection life will be like 
is just spectacular. Just let me read a few verses to you. Revelation 21, 1 through 5. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he, our resurrected king, who sits on the throne, will say, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, write, for these words are true and faithful. It's going to happen. Take it to the bank. This is a taste of what resurrected life will be like in the new world. Heaven and earth reunited. Paradise regained. Think about that for a moment. Think about how beautiful this creation is, even though it's under the curse of sin and does not function and operate the way that God designed it to. Think how beautiful it is. My brother in honeymoon, uh, his new wife, Alicia, finally got to go on their honeymoon. They've been married now a little over a year, I think. Um, and they were in Riviera Maya on their honeymoon. We got a text from Alicia that said, from Alicia, she was so overwhelmed by the beauty of what she was experiencing and God's artistry that it brought her to tears. Can you imagine what the renewed Riviera Maya is going to be like? Can you imagine what the renewed Rocky Mountains are going to be like? Can you imagine what the renewed Hawaii is going to be like? Swimming with sharks without any fear at all. We'll all be like Brandon. And guess what? If I don't get to go to Jerusalem in this life, I'll be able to travel to the new Jerusalem, the capital city of the new world, whose gates are always open, people coming to and fro. Look, and guess what? As we travel in the new world, no flight delays, no car sickness, no winding up in a hotel with a kidney stone, Kevin Hewitt. Look, 1 John 3.2 and Philippians 3.21 tell us that our resurrected bodies that will inhabit the resurrected world with the resurrected Jesus they are going to be amazing. Philippians 3.21 tells us. Matthew 13.43 says we will shine like the sun, just as Jesus shone like the sun at his transfiguration and now shines in a glorified human body. 
Peter says we will become partakers of Jesus' divine nature in 2 Peter 1.4. Romans 8.29 says that we will be perfectly conformed to the image of Jesus, his character, his attitudes, his thought life, his choices. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that our resurrection bodies will be imperishable, immortal. Because remember, the, the, the defiling and the, corrup- the corruption has gone. In other words, we're not going to age, we're not going to decay, we're not going to die. And finally, and perhaps most all-inspiring, is that on the new world, in the new world, we will share Jesus' throne. What a king that, what a king that does that. Talk about generosity. What king says you can share my throne? Revelation 3.21 says, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So putting these verses together, when Jesus returns, our bodies will be transformed into a body so beautiful, so free from sickness, so filled with the character of God in the fruit of the Spirit that we will literally shine and rule over God's redeemed world. Our bodies will be transformed into something so beautiful inside and out that C.S. Lewis observed this. The dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to today may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Now, this is so important. You ready? You got to hear this. So if you've been zoning out, got to hear this. There's an important caveat to all of this. In verse 5, Peter, told, he tells us that there's one condition. He wrote in verse 5 that this inheritance is reserved in heaven for those who are kept by the power of God through faith. We must have faith in God's son, Jesus. What does this mean? We must transfer our trust to the resurrected Christ. In other words, we must trust that he paid for our sins through his death, that he he conquered death by rising from the dead, and that he can give us the same victory over sin and death in this life and in the life to come. And therefore, as a result of that belief, we commit ourselves to being his disciple. We commit to being with him, to learn from him, how to live like him. We commit to joining him in his mission to raise dead things to life. And when you're connected to Christ through this sort of faith, this inheritance is yours. Are you connected to Christ through faith? Have you made this commitment to be his lifelong disciple? Now, let me close with this. And that statement's a little tricky. I'm not finished just yet. So, uh, but this is how we're going to wrap it up. I just want to share briefly with you how this future hope should impact our today. And how we live now. First of all, if you have not trusted your life to Christ, you got to do so today. 
I mentioned last Sunday that there are 2,500 sudden deaths a day in this country alone. People expecting to live to kingdom who don't make it there. And I'm not trying to like fear you in to the kingdom. I'm just saying that your tomorrow is not guaranteed. You can't put off this choice for tomorrow because you don't know if tomorrow you'll have that. And so if you have not put your trust in Christ, if you have not committed your life to being a disciple of his, you need to do so today. Don't say thanks but no thanks. You're going to be walking away from the greatest gift that you could possibly ever receive. Second thing, and by the way, to do this, you pray to God, and pray is just converse, prayer is just conversing with God. You, you say from your heart, look, I now see that I've been doing my life apart from you. I have ignored you, and in doing so, my actions have demonstrated that I believe that I could find the good life without you. I, I was believing that me being the master of my life and not you being the master of my life was the best thing. Lord, forgive me. Forgive me. Forgive me for living as if you don't exist. Fill me with your spirit. Teach me how to be with you. Teach me how to learn from you, how to live like you. I invite you to control my life from this day forward. Change me, transform me, use me for your purposes. I'm yours. How else should this future hope affect us today? Our future hope helps us cope with the struggles of today. We see this theme repeatedly in the Bible. When you know that there's light at the end of the tunnel, you're more willing to be in the tunnel. When you know that there is glory on the other side of the hill, you're more likely to continue marching up that hill. You are given motivation to faithfully endure. This is what our future hope can provide for us. It can give us motivation to keep on keeping on. It reminds us that even our darkest valleys... When compared to this future that we have in God's new world, are light and momentary and brief in comparison. Is this vision of God's future so rooted in your heart? Do you, do you visualize it every day? Do you dwell in it? Because if you did... Your troubles today will feel lighter, they will feel, they will feel shorter, and so whatever it takes to get this vision in you, what life will be like in resurrected bodies in the resurrected world with the resurrected Jesus, do it. It'll change you. Look, the author of Hebrews wrote this about Jesus in, in Hebrews 12 too. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. What enabled Jesus to endure the cross? The joy he had. What did he have joy in? What was, what was the joy that was set before Jesus? What was meaning, you know, what was the joy that was front and center in his mind? 
the glorious future that he was making possible through his suffering. It was this future hope that helped him cope. When he was sweating drops of blood in the garden, he saw the defeat of evil. He saw Satan's head being crushed. He saw the curse being lifted off the world. He saw us in glorified, resurrected bodies, enjoying unhindered, unbroken fellowship with him and the Father and the Spirit. That's what kept him going in the garden. That's what kept him going through the cross, through the beatings, the mocking, the spitting, his back being ripped to shreds, hanging naked for all to see, suffocating. That was the joy. The glorious future was the joy that was set before him that helped him to endure. And so meditate on this future so that you can taste it, so that you can see it, so that you long for it. Lastly, our future hope gives us motivation to sacrifice in this life so that others may receive the same inheritance. Look, if we believe that this side of the grave is just a blip on the radar and that the life to come will go on forever, will we be concerned about this life? Sure. But we will not be overly concerned about it. Our greatest concern will be making investments today that will pay off in the future. That will pay off not in this extremely short life, but in the eternal life that is to come. Look, that's investing 101, isn't it? Put your money where you will get the greatest, longest return. Investment in the new world is the greatest investment fund available. It's the greatest investment fund available. For it will give you the greatest guaranteed return for the longest time. If only the people on Wall Street knew this. If only we would get Matthew 6. Jesus is the greatest investment advisor. He taught this, Matthew 6, 19 through 21, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. How do you lay up treasures in heaven? How do you do that? You know what we do? We give generously and we sacrifice our time, our talents, and our treasure. And we forego earthly reward now in order to work for the welfare of others. That's how you lay up treasure in heaven. In particular, we help people become disciples of Jesus Christ. That's how we lay up treasure in heaven. When we love people in this way, Jesus is saying, you will rack up rewards in the new world. Look, while our sacrificial deeds of love and generosity cannot you know, earn our way, make us earn our way into heaven, it definitely will determine the degree of reward we will receive in heaven. 
the, I think the Bible is clear on this. Check out John Piper's comments on this. I, th- I think they're very helpful. The point I am stressing here is that there are differences in the fullness of delight that each of us enjoys in heaven. Each will be full in heaven, for there are no frustrations there. But the fullness of each will not be the same, since the measure that we use to bless others on earth and that God will use to bless us in heaven are different for different people. Therefore, I say again, the more sacrificially generous we are on earth, the greater will be our enjoyment of heaven. And there have been people that have radically taken this to heart. I think I mentioned Jim Elliott last week. He's one example. In the 50s, right, he's this missionary to an unreached people group in Ecuador. He was speared to death by the very people he was trying to lead to Jesus and reach for Jesus. Like so many people before him, he gave his life for the cause of Christ, right? Here's what he famously penned in his journal on on October 28th, 1949. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Centuries earlier, in the 17th century, an English preacher, Philip Henry, said this. He is, and I think this is where Jim Elliot got it from. He is no fool who parts with that which he cannot keep when he is sure to be recompensed with that which he cannot lose. Look, buying things, taking vacations, going to Hawaii, swimming with sharks, owning stuff, having nice things, there's nothing wrong with that. But if that is your top priority, and that is distracting you from seeking God's kingdom and his righteousness and seeing people being discipled and come into the kingdom and having this inheritance, then we've got to adjust how we're living. We've got to. And look at this. Aren't you willing to forego some things in this life? If our glorious future is life in the resurrected world, where we'll have an eternity to travel and to enjoy so many things, can't you be willing to forego that trip so you can invest more in people's lives to see them become disciples of Jesus? Can't you forego buying this special thing here? Look, this life's going to be over like that. Forgo it. Sacrifice. Reap up rewards that you'll enjoy forever. Quit being so focused on this life. You're going to be dead tomorrow. Give extravagantly. Extravagantly. Give up now what you cannot keep, knowing that you will be recompensed with what you cannot lose forever. And you know what? In the end, you will find that what on the surface seemed like a great sacrifice today will be no sacrifice at all in eternity. You'll find that. Let's pray. Lord, we are so prone to wander. We are so prone to get so caught up in this life, in this here and now, in the struggles of today, that we forget that this is just a small, 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 small dot on the timeline of eternity past and eternity future. 
Lord, may we not be so consumed with the cares of this life that we forget to have an eternal perspective. Lord, I pray that we would be so excited about the future, so excited about what's to come, so trusting in you that you will repay us a hundredfold for any sacrifice that we make in this life, that we would be willing to just give it all. And that we would live lives of just full-out surrender for you, for your glory, and for the benefit of others. Because there are people that are dying and that are lost that will not be a part of this glorious future. May we, on the shore of safety, not just stand in tent. May we go back in with you as your partner into the, the stormy seas to see other people rescued. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.